The other like really strange thing about growing up in the 70s and the 80s is that like culturally, at least in the United States, like there was this idea of assimilation, which doesn't like, and you can watch like these like weird cartoons about it now, but you know, the ideal is that like, if you speak English and you just adopt all the sort of Americanisms of like, you know, apple pie and baseball and like hot dogs and Monday night football, like we'll treat you like Americans. So like, you know, and so my parents like read the, you know, brochure as it were. And they're like, well, this sounds great. Like we're going to be Americans. You're like, okay, Fook and Lou, like you guys be Americans too. And, you know, obviously there's like all this fine print, right? Like racism, you know, and like yeah. patriarchy and like xenophobia, you know, which my parents like didn't really, you know, they weren't really like, didn't understand. Like it, you know, like, it, it takes like, it, like if you're not from the United States, like you don't really understand the subtleties or the or even the overt, you know, sort of racism that can happen and does happen, right? Like if you're a foreigner, you're just like, I don't know, like maybe this is like a cultural thing and I don't, you know, so it's like, mm -hmm. I think for my brother and for me growing up in the 70s and 80s, like, uh, you know, as we were becoming Americanized, and we're like, oh, this is like racist and this is that. And my parents were like, what are you talking about? Like, you're just lucky to be here, you know? I'm like, oh my God. Like, so that was like a barrier. Hey guys, welcome back to the Situation Room for season two. We are back at it, resuming our journey into Asian America to talk about the Asian American Pacific Islander or AAPI issues, culture, and stories. As always, we dive deep into the Asian American community from questions like, where are you really from? And representation to sharing food and our own experiences. My name is Emily Villaverde. I'm Zach King. This week, we have an incredible episode for you. We interviewed Fook Tran, the author of Saigon, a misfit's memory of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. This book was recognized as an Amazon best book of the year, editors pick on Audible, and an April must listen at Apple Books. Critics love it, but also Emily and I do too. Yeah, this was an incredible interview, you guys. In our conversation with Fook for this interview, we talked about his Asian American experience as a Vietnamese refugee growing up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. During this time, Fook was surrounded in the 80s punk rock scene and trying to find a sense of belonging. He called his assimilation experience as, quote unquote, the fight to fit in. Um, in his book, he discusses how luck has played a role in his life, how opportunity meets preparation, and living with authenticity and shameless identity. We are so excited to promote his book and share this incredible interview with you guys. So stay tuned. Yes, this is one of my favorite interviews, I think, that we've done. I say that a lot, but uh, I- says that with every guest. It's so good, But this though. was an incredible interview, and I loved reading this book. Uh, you guys should definitely pick up a copy if you guys find it at your local bookstore. I found it really relatable. Not, well, I guess that I'm also like, yeah, I also grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, but like, uh, even if you are not Asian, I think this is like a super relatable book because it's kind of like a young adult, like memoir, right? And like mm -hmm. young adult books, what makes them interesting and like appeal to a lot of different people is that like all of us at one point or will be young adults, you know, like, like all older adults were young adults at one point so they can relate to that experience. And so like, going through that in his memoir, you can definitely feel some of those themes and reflect about in your own life too. But one of the things that thought was funny is when I picked up this book from the mail, I opened it and I was going like up my driveway with my dad and he saw it and he goes, I have a picture of 
myself or him that looks like that, like an 80s yearbook picture. Um, and I thought that was really funny. Yes, I also really liked the conversation that we have about um, authenticity and identity. It's something that definitely sparks interest in a lot of young readers. And for people like Zach and myself who have no shame expressing our identity and who we are as individuals. Um, this was, again, like I mentioned, it's an incredible book. You guys should definitely pick up a copy, whether it's at your local bookstore or even online. But yeah, uh, if you guys are ready, let's jump into this interview. Let's get to it. Hi, Fook. Welcome into the Situation Room. We are super excited to have you. Uh, tell us about yourself, uh, your story, um, and what we'll your book, uh, Saigon, and we'll get into your we'll get into it. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me, uh, y'all. Um, I yeah, I'm Fook Tran. Um, I uh, gosh. Um, so I um, was born in Saigon, Vietnam. Uh, my family uh, fled to the United States in 1975. Um, after the Civil War ended in Vietnam. And then uh, we ended up uh, growing up or being sponsored by a family. And I ended up growing up in small town PA um, in a small town called Carlisle, which nobody's ever heard of except for Zach, apparently. Um, and maybe Emily too, I don't know. <laughs> and then, uh, um, yeah, so I grew up there as like the only Vietnamese family. Um, and one of the one of the only, I was like the only you know, Asian kid or even Vietnamese kid, you know, up through like middle school in my classes in my school. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, well, let's see, I'll fast forward. This is like all spoilers <laughs> from the book. So um, I graduated high school, uh, went off to college at Bard College. Um, I ended up majoring in classical languages and literature, went to grad school, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, I moved to New York City where um, I taught Latin during the day and um, I apprenticed to be a tattooer at night. Um, and so I have had sort of a career, like my my day job is, I don't know which my day job is, you know, it depends, right? It's like, like which is like Batman's real identity? Is it, you know, is it Batman mm -hmm. or is it Bruce Wayne? But um uh, so I, I've been a tattooer and a Latin teacher for since 1997. Uh, I'm on hiatus from teaching just briefly while I work on some writing, um, but I'm still tattooing and uh, I live in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Oh, and so in 2012, I gave a TEDx talk uh, about uh, about a bunch of stuff, but mostly about like grammar and identity and language. And um, because of that TEDx talk, I got um, some attention from a literary agent and uh, she approached me and said, oh, it seems like, you know, you have an interesting story. Maybe have you thought about writing a memoir? And I was like, ah, sure, why not? Like, let's give it a shot. Uh, and then I wrote this book that came out during a pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, that was really good timing. Um, no, it's a, it's a, and it's been pretty incredible um, just hearing people's reactions to it. Yeah, there it is. Yep. Product placement. Nice job. <laughs> we love it. Thanks. Yep. If you're watching yeah. on YouTube, you can see the book. Um, actually, when I first got the package, so I have one of those like middle of nowhere Pennsylvania driveways. So it's like super long. And so I was in the car with my dad and he goes, I think that's your package. So we stop at the mailbox. I open it. He looks at it. He goes, I have a picture just like that. Because um, <laughs> I think nice. you and my dad are about the same age. And so I thought that was funny. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, so I wrote this uh, coming of age memoir about growing up, uh, growing up in a small town in PA and like, sort of like the things that I latched on to, to 
create a sense of community for myself, you know, so it was mostly through reading great books and like the sort of 80s punk rock skateboard scene. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're really excited to have you in the Situation Room today, Fook, but let's just dive right into it. I am really fascinated with how your story starts and you write about it in your book and you talk about it in your TED Talk. And I just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about how your family made it to the United States and give our listeners a little bit of backstory about that. Sure. Um, So my, uh, let's see, so my father was a lawyer in Vietnam and then my mother's parents, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents worked for the U.S. Embassy. Um, so, uh, so my grandparents, my maternal grandparents were the only ones who were fluent in English, um, in our family. And then sort of like when it all sort of started, you know, unraveling, um, the U S government, um, incredibly so actually, you know, decided that they needed to evacuate any employees and collaborators, uh, who were in the, in South Vietnam and in Saigon. And so, um, as part of that operation, I think they evacuated like 130,000 um, South Vietnamese nationals, you know, which is like, like, mm-hmm. it's surprising to me just to thinking about how, you know, like hearing sort of like NPR stories. I, I heard this one that I was really struck by um, about an Afga- Afghan, Afghanistan translator, Afghan, Afghan, Afghani? Afghani. I, I think so, yeah. yeah, Afghani, Afghani translator and how, his Air Force counterpart, American Air Force counterpart, was trying to um, secure his um, escape from Afghanistan because like he, you know, he and his entire family were targets because he was, you know, helping translate for the Americans. And, uh, you know, the interview was with this American soldier and he was feeling such incredible guilt because like it wasn't successful and like his family was receiving death threats and like, you know, and just to think about like a, a federal policy where the somebody somewhere, maybe the president, who knows, like recognizes the moral imperative that um, comes with having people, you know, who are collaborating with you and the peril that they are um, subjected to when they agree to work with you. Um, and then to, and then to recognize it to allocate all these resources to helping them escape because like if they don't then like all these people are just going to get dragged into a ditch and shot you know and it's very easy for like an imperial power just to be like not our problem can i swear on your podcast yeah go ahead yeah so they're like yeah fuck them you know like that's them's the breaks you know so like yeah. I, I so my family was part of that like lucky you know maybe it was moral maybe it wasn't maybe there was like some other i don't know uh, trade-off that I don't know about, you know, like, I, I'm not sure what the American government stood to gain by evacuating 130,000 Vietnamese people, but they did. And so my family was part of that. And um, anyway, I don't know why I went down that tangent, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that like, we don't, we don't see that anymore. It's not like a blueprint that like the American government or the military does all the time. So for whatever reason, mm-hmm. like we, you know, they just happened to do it at that t- moment in history. So I feel incredibly fortunate there. And um and so the day that we were supposed to leave, like my whole family, this is a spoiler. Should I like tell the story yeah, from the yeah. book? About, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. So my family, we we're, so my grandparents, I mean, this is also crazy. Like it's like, you know, Southeast Asian family, you know, there's like 20 million cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff. Mm-hmm. So my grandparents had to pick like 12 people, you know? So it was like, okay, you know, it was like dodgeball. It's like, okay, you, 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 and you. Okay, let's go. And um, so we were waiting to get on a bus to leave Saigon and, um, uh, <clears throat> and then like we we're 
in the long line, like we get on the bus finally, like, you know, it's like people get on, they leave, they get on, you know, the bus like gets packed full. And then, and then finally we get on the bus and like, I'm like one and a half, almost two. And I just start freaking out and crying. And like my grandmother is like, oh my God. She's like, okay, let's just get off the bus. Like Book is being super annoying. And so everyone got off the bus after we had waited and they're like, we'll just get on the next bus. And then we let the people in line behind us get on the bus. And then as that bus was pulling away, it got hit by like a rocket and like blew up like right there. And like everybody on the bus died. And then, uh, yeah. So we were just like, well, that was lucky, you know? And then, uh, and then we just waited for the next bus, got on the next bus. That one didn't blow up. And then we got on some airplanes and helicopters and stuff. And then ended up in, uh, yeah, Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania in 1975. Wow. Every time I like read that or Hitler or listen to it, I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason to that. You know, like it's really like, I think to me, like I, I think about, I mean, I've, that's like been like part of our family story for so long, you know, and I think my, my grandmother and my parents would say that there's something kind of divine or miraculous in there. And I think my, my, my problem with that is that it makes, it makes it sound like we deserved to live more than other people did. You know, they're like, oh, God saved us. And I'm like, really? Like God saved us, but he didn't save all those other like people on the bus in front of us like that. That doesn't sit well with me. Like, and, and I know that the opposite of that is just like, it's random. And that makes people really nervous. But I, I think I'm okay with that because I think there's, there's a lot of like random sort of lucky things that happen in your life. And sometimes they break your way and sometimes they don't. And, um, and I don't think we, we account for it enough, like, like the randomness of, of things. And mm-hmm. cause it makes us feel nervous and it makes us feel like, well, what is the meaning of the universe? And like, is everything super random? And it, and it kind of is like, there's like, there's like a bazillion Ted talks about that, like about how we don't account for sort of random, the randomized um probability probability. exactly exactly Mm -hmm. yeah you took the words right out of my mouth yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah it's weird like everything that's ever happened has led to this moment you know it's like weird to think about um but one of my but we want to give it meaning right like we want to like give it some meaning or something yeah everything has meaning according to humans um (laughs) my favorite line in the book (laughs) yeah um so one of my favorite lines of the book is on page three um it's uh, we were rural royalty, Dairy Queens and Burger Kings. This was small town PA, poorly red, very white, collar blue. Um, and I, I really relate to those lines because, I mean, I I don't think where I grew up is like too rural because it's like Philly suburbs, but it's like on the border of Philly suburbs and like Amish country. And so like, but the thing is like, there's a state highway that connects the two worlds. And on the side of that, there's a shopping center that I worked at the Dairy Queen um, across from the Burger <laughs> I love it for four years yeah. you know you know I know that was like that was, it's very funny like I literally in my town I was like okay like those were like the two beacons you know like I mean there's other fast food places too but yeah that's so funny yeah so like oh my god I, I have a lot of Dairy Queen stories but that's a whole nother thing <laughs> yeah that's a different podcast uh, right that is a different podcast but can you tell us more about like Carlisle and growing up there in like the 80s and you know being a Vietnamese refugee because like right now for us like when we grew up in like the 2000s and 2010s like the world is very different, obviously, you know. Yeah, thank God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, a couple of things, right? Like the way that, um, so when um, the federal government brought all the, the 130,000 Vietnamese refugees over, um, 
you know, there, there were four relocation camps set up in the U.S. There was like one in Arkansas, there was one in uh, Pennsylvania, one in Florida, and then one in um, Southern California. And then, um, and like, because there wasn't like an established, like there were basically like no Vietnamese people here in the U.S. prior to like 1975. There's like a handful, but like not many at all. And, um, and, and so they, the government actually set up this policy. It was called the refugee dispersion policy. And they were like, okay, we need to accelerate their, you know, sort of assimilation as quickly as possible. So um, we're going to spread these like Vietnamese refugees out as far from each other as possible. So they don't like literally it's in the language of the policy. So they don't form ethnic enclaves, which they felt would be sort of a barrier to learning English and like figuring out American culture and stuff. You know, maybe true, maybe not. We don't, you know, we'll never know. Um, and so, yeah. So we were sponsored by the, you know, these like nice Lutherans in Carlisle. Um, and, and so like, basically like your whole family was, was at the refugee relocation center. And then once like an American family came along, you know, it was a little bit like, you know, I don't know, the Humane Society or something like, oh, they look nice. We'll take them. I mean, it's like much more humanized than that. But anyway, they were like, they would, they were our sponsors and they would sort of like see us through, like the, you know, finding a job and finding an apartment and all that stuff. And so they were in Carlisle. That's the only reason we ended up in Carlisle is because our um, sponsor families were there. So we went to Carlisle and, and so, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, from like, there were a few other Vietnamese families that would come and go, like they would come for like six months to a year and then like peace out. And for whatever reason, like my family was the only family that stayed. Um, and uh, you know, and my parents, like, even when there were other Vietnamese families in the area, like, my parents didn't really, like, associate with them or hang out with them, and again, like, it was pretty transitory, you know, so, like, in my, like, in my little world as, like, a grade school kid, like, there just weren't, there was never other Vietnamese kids in my mm -hmm. classes, and definitely, and even in school, like, I was, like, the only Asian kid in school through fifth grade, and then and then there were like a few other Asian, like once I got to like middle school, you know, and like elementary schools kind of funnel yeah. together, there would be like one or two other kids, but like never in my classes. Like, um, yeah, I think I was the only Asian kid in my classes through high school, like in, my, in like sort of like academic classes, like until like junior year, maybe. <laughs> like it's wild, right? You're just like, yeah, so. Um, and, you know, the other thing, the other, like, really strange thing about growing up in the 70s and the 80s is that, like, culturally, at least in the United States, like, there was this idea of assimilation, which doesn't, like, and you can watch, like, these, like, weird cartoons about it now, but, you know, the idea was that, like, if you speak English and you just adopt all the sort of Americanisms of, like, you know, apple pie and baseball and, like, hot dogs and Monday night football, like, we'll treat you like Americans. So, like, you know, and so my parents, like, read the, you know, brochure as it were and they're like well this sounds great like we're gonna be americans You're like okay fook and lou like you guys be americans too and you know obviously there's like all this fine print right like racism you know and like yeah. patriarchy and like xenophobia you know which my parents like didn't really you know they weren't really like didn't understand like it you know like it, it takes like, it, like if you're not from the united states like you don't really understand the subtleties or the even the overt you know, sort of racism that can happen and does happen, right? Like if you're a foreigner, you're just like, I don't know, like maybe this is like a cultural thing and I don't, you know, so it's like, mm -hmm. I think for my brother and for me growing up in the seventies and eighties, like, you know, as we were becoming Americanized, 
and we're like, oh, this is like racist and this is that. And my parents were like, what are you talking about? Like, you're just lucky to be here, you know? I'm like, oh my God. Like, so that was like a barrier sort of going back to what you were saying before, Zach, about like that conversation about racism. And like, there's like this intergenerational sort of gap that like, you know, you're constantly trying to bridge about like talking to your parents about like things like racism and my parents are like, well, you could be dead. So, you know, count your blessings. And you're like, uh, okay, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think because you, in your book, you talked about um, the Americanization that you went through. And um, I actually, it's one of the parts that I remember from the book. And you talk about how Americanization is, was kind of like your survival tactic to avoid being bullied and to try and fit in because the more American you seemed, the more likely you're going to fit in, the less attention you draw to yourself. So I thought, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's crazy to think because e even now there have been like, at least in my experience, the same, it's the same thing. You can still see it repeats throughout history. Um, and I really related to that part of the book because growing up, I was one of the very few Filipino students in my class. And I think when I graduated from high school, there was about 500 students in my graduating class. There might've been only maybe two or three other Filipino um, students with me in our class. And I didn't even know who exactly, like who was Filipino, who wasn't, because I, I felt like I was the only one. Hmm. And I remember, um, and I've mentioned this in past uh, podcast episodes that I also used Americanization as my kind of quote unquote, you know, survival tactic for bullying and just trying to fit in with the bigger crowds. And whether that was, I stopped bringing traditional Filipino foods for lunch and I brought Lunchables and Capri Sun. And um, I begged my parents to let me shop at limited to and go to like all of these like name brand stores so that I could wear the brands I could fit in because that was my survival tactics it made me you know think about what you went through in your book and what you used as your survival strategies to fit in with the crowds or what you thought would work and compare it to you know, my life and what other people probably in this day and age are going through now and what they're using to try, whether it's trying to fit in or unfortunately try to cover up their true identities. Um, mm -hmm. So I really, I really resonated with that part of the book. And, you know, I just, I was curious, what made you decide to write this memoir? And, you know, I wanted to ask, when did you have that realization that, you know, you had a story to tell and, you know, it was time for you to share it with other people? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I'd love to, if, if I could react to a little bit of what you're saying, before, you know, before, like, um, I'm shocked that like that, shocked and like, not shocked, I guess, um, that like that is still a mindset for like a lot of, I guess, underrepresented people, right? Like this idea that like, you have to fit into mainstream culture, right? Which, you know, is just sort of like code for like white culture. Um, because like, white culture sees itself as like the norm right like that's yeah. problematic and you know i'm sure you can read all about that and like you know your social take a sociology class right <laughs> but this sort of like norm, you know sort of dominant culture establishes the norm right and then everything else is a sort of like degrees of aberration from the norm um 
boy, I really wish that I, <laughs> I really wish that you had said like, oh, things in the 2000s, they're like so chill. And like, you know, like, it's like, dang, like, you know, it's like Emily's still like going through the same thing. And, uh, you know, and I, I also want to just say like, I, I put in that phrase, like the fight to fit in, in the title mm -hmm. very specifically. And, you know, because, um, because of how problematic it is, like, like I, there are lots of things that are problematic about like how I grew up and how I saw myself and like all the stuff that I internalized, but I didn't want to make excuses for it as I was telling the story. Like, I just wanted to lay it out there because, um, I mean, for a number of reasons and I can talk about it later or not, but like, I, I didn't want to do like sort of like Monday morning quarterbacking or like, you know, sort of do this like historical revisionism where, or revision where like I try to rewrite things like I, I emotionally speaking like I wanted to just be like this is how I felt in high school like it's obviously not how I feel now as like a grown-ass man but like you know like when you're 16 like this is how you you know you think that like oh if I just be less Vietnamese then kids will accept me more because like you know that that that's clearly like the sticking point um so you know fighting in or fitting in is you know it means that like you have to change parts of yourself, right? And like to fit into something like I have to like tuck this in or hide this or, you know, put on concealer. And, you know, Brene Brown says this really smart thing. Um, you know, she says that the opposite of fitting in is belonging, you know, and that's, that's really what we are looking for. But, you know, as a teenage kid, you don't know that like you, mm -hmm. you want to belong somewhere. You don't want to like change yourself so that you fit in somewhere. Like you want to find your tribe of people, right. And people who, understand you, value you, um, and can see you for who you are. Anyway, um, yeah, so the, so the genesis of the book came from the TED Talk, really. Um, so before, you know, before I gave that TED Talk in 2012, like, I never really publicly talked about, like, my refugee story or growing up in small town PA, just, like, partly, you know, because, like, I was still in the mindset of, like, like, nobody wants to hear this story. It's so weird. Like, it's so particular to who I am. And, it just didn't sound like anyone else's story, you know? And I, I was still sort of in that mindset of like, if this doesn't sound like someone else's story, who wants to hear the story? Like, it's just, it's too weird, you know? Um, <clears throat> so I just never talked about it. And then in 2012, I had the chance to give this Ted talk. And I just thought, um, you know, and, <laughs> and I'd been through a lot of therapy and counseling at that point, like up to that point, uh, like I, and I'd maybe had just wrapped up. So I was, I was feeling like super, comfortable with who I was and my story and and luck I mean this is very much like luck in the sense of like not getting on the exploding bus luck like I just finished counseling my daughter had just been born and then this chance to give the TED talk came up and um and I was like fuck it like I'm gonna swing for the fences like I'm gonna literally talk about like being a refugee you know 80s pop culture Star Wars grammar like whatever I can talk about like I'm just gonna like talk about everything that I love in 12 minutes, you know, like what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> but I just figured if I'm going to fail, I might as well fail spectacularly. Um, and people really dug the talk and it got picked up by like uh, National Public Radio and stuff like that. And then, um, and then after that, the reception to the talk anyway, um, I started doing like live storytelling in Portland. Like it's sort of like a version of like the Moth Radio where like you just get up on stage and you have like seven minutes to tell a true story from your life. Um, and so I did like, maybe I did that like two, like one or two times a year. Like I would like write a story for my life, you know, perform it. It's not like stand up. It's just like you get up and you tell a story. <clears throat> sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad. And like every time I did it, like 
I would be like, oh, people really liked it. Like, I guess maybe people want to hear more of my stories and like what I have to say. Uh, so that, like after like maybe two or three years of that, I was like, oh, like when I'm like 70 and like I have like nothing to do and like my legs don't work anymore, I'll probably write a book. Like, so I had the idea in my brain that I would write a memoir, but it was like more about like when my body was all broken down and the only thing that was working left was my brain. <laughs> like I would just like <laughs> write the story. But um, but then my agent contacted me in 2016. Well, my, my soon to be agent <clears throat> in 2016, she contacted me and said, you know, asked me if, you know, I was interested in writing a memoir because she had seen the TED talk. Um, so yeah, wow. again, that was also lucky, right? I mean, there's a lot of just yeah. like, you know, you just, you're just in the right place at the right time. Although someone once said, you know, luck is really just like opportunity plus preparation, meaning that like, you have to have like the chat, like, I guess I could have been a shitty writer, you know, and then she would have been like, hey, you want to write a memoir? And I've been like, sure. And then like, I send her a sample of my writing and she's like, oh, this sucks, you know, and then she'll be like, yeah, good luck. But um, so I think, I think there's a confluence of, you know, I had like the writing chops to write the story and she just happened to sort of ping me at the right time. But yeah. That's a, that's a common phrase in like business speak, you know, like which opportunity uh, meets preparation. Mm, it is yeah, yeah. I, I heard that somewhere and it, it seems to make sense to me right yeah. like yeah because you could have the opportunity mm. or you could be super prepared and just never have the chance right so there's mm. there's a kind of randomized luck you know going back to what Emily was asking also like I didn't you know I think I I, I was writing the story for myself you know primarily like I just wanted to get it down and I felt like I had something to say and for myself like I I, I don't think I have such like sort of delusions of grandeur that I'm like, I'm going to really speak for the, to the Asian American experience or the, the Vietnamese American experience. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's, we're not a monolith. Like, I mean, Asians yeah. are not a monolith and not even like Vietnamese people are not a monolith. Um, you know, you read like something that like I write versus something that like Ocean Vuong writes and then something that like Viet Tung Vuong writes. Like it's not, it's, they're all so different. And, and that's part of the richness of it, I think. And it's, it's part of what makes it amazing. Like the storytelling, you know, like, um, you know, it's like, you think about just even like sort of like African-American literature, right? Like black literature is like so different, you know, like, you know, like Richard Wright is not James Baldwin, you know, and, and neither of them is like, you know, um, you know, Ralph Ellison. So, yeah. I mean, I just, I wanted to ask because um, at school, I study creative writing as well. Um, I'm an English minor and I've taken a lot of creative writing and storytelling classes um, for this minor and listening to different people share their reasons for the stories that they have to tell or the, the pieces that they write. I, I just get sucked right into it and it, I feel like I'm just immersed in the experience in a whole other way um, because reading Saigon, it, it was not only allowing me to tap into, you know, your personal story and get a glimpse of the experiences that you went through to, you know, just mold you into who you are today through this memoir. I, I loved it. Oh, um, thanks. <laughs> and, you know, you take, an incredible step with being vulnerable and you know just talking about different themes that you came across throughout your life um and I really do commend you for being so vulnerable through your book because oh, that 
takes a lot and it's not easy to write and be vulnerable. <laughs> I've learned that myself through poetry classes and short story classes. It's that's actually the one thing that my professors had trouble with when it came to critiquing my writing was I wasn't being vulnerable enough. And uh. I was also writing about I was writing about my my experience growing up. Um, all of my writing pieces are based on me growing up Filipino American. And then I also started tying in Filipino folklore. And I just tried grasping at the different aspects of my culture. And for some reason, my professors didn't think that was vulnerable enough. And, mm -hmm. you know, something was blocking it. So I commend you for being very vulnerable <laughs> in Saigon. It was incredible. Oh, but well, I want I mean, no, I mean, shout out to like, you know, counseling and mental health, right? I mean, I think like, yeah, that, definitely. <laughs> like that really didn't get me to a place of, um, to be able to share that, you know, and on my writing notebook, I had a little note to myself that just said, whatever you're afraid to write, write that. Um, so that was just like a nice reminder to myself to just, just like, if I, if I ever felt like I shouldn't write something, that's when I definitely should write it. <laughs> that's incredible. Like that. yeah. Were you always, um, were you always vulnerable or, you know, was this a really big challenge, you know, just to write and release Saigon? Um, I think it came along really with like, I know I sound like a spokesperson, it's like an infomercial for like counseling now, but like, I think I really, I think like going, I think processing like my childhood and like my relationship with my parents and like growing up in mm -hmm. Carlisle and just giving myself like the permission and the tools to um, metabolize those experiences in a think healthy way like really gave me permission to talk about them you know because like now I'm not feeling mm -hmm. shame about them like it's just sort of like who, who I am and like I you know like I think like I accept myself and if people don't well fuck them like I don't it's not my you know what I mean like if someone doesn't like me yeah. is that my problem or theirs it's their problem mm -hmm. right but when you're a little kid and you're growing up you're like oh that's me like I did something for that person to not like me and it takes a and then and if you have like kind of like dysfunctional parents on top of that, then you're just like, what am I doing? You know, so it takes a long time to kind of get to a point where like you have a sense of like, okay, is this me or is this other people? Right. And, and very quickly you can figure out like, you know, <laughs> who's the fuck up in this situation? Is this me or is it other people? You, you know, and sometimes it's me, like I fully own that. And sometimes it's other people and mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> thanks for acknowledging the vulnerability and I, I really appreciate that um it definitely is was uh, un an uncomfortable read for you know like my brother and I think my parents mm -hmm. it was you know I can imagine it was hard for them to to read yeah I think it's um I know just writing about something that's personal and vulnerable it's not only hard to write but it's also hard for other people to you know take in and read and absorb um, so again, I commend you for, for all of that. It really did, um, touch me and, you know, it, I felt like you shared something extremely personal and it wasn't just through the vulnerability that you shared through your book, um, that allowed your readers to have a, a different type of connection, uh, with you and your experiences, but there are, you know, different things throughout the book. And one thing that you bring up are these quote unquote universal themes and you emphasize important questions in the very beginning in the prologue of your book. And some of these universal themes of great literature uh, include love, acceptance, a place of belonging, and that in a way shape those important questions that you talk about throughout your book. 
um, I want to talk about acceptance and a place of belonging because I know we touched up on it um, a little while ago, but I want to dive in uh, a little bit deeper. So every young adult and kid wants to be accepted by you know their peers and their community. We talked about it. It's something that you know you struggled with or you experienced growing up. And like I mentioned before, it repeats itself throughout history. Maybe not in the same way, but it molds and it fits into the society so that there are still kids, uh, you know, that are afraid to express their true identities and they're afraid to, you know, showcase things that they really should be proud of. Um, and, you know, sometimes we have to find a group that we have to fit in with. And when I first read this, I was taken aback by, um, when you mentioned the role of being a punk rock skater, because it threw me off completely um, <laughs> with, you know, upbringing. I forgot that that was, I honestly thought, forgot that that was a, a, a group <laughs> in like the social community. Like the, you have the preps, you have the, the athletes, and then you have the skaters and you have the punk rock kids. And I completely, it, it tapped into a part of, you know, my memories that I forgot was there. Um, that's great and it's it's interesting because there are so many different groups in you know that social community and there are different groups of different people they do different things they act different ways but in in the grand scheme of things they just want to find acceptance and find their own place in society so I want to ask what did it mean or look like to be punk to you <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know i think growing up in small town well i mean you know obviously the music right is like mm -hmm. you know like you you can't be like a punk you know you can't like be into punk rock and not like punk rock music be like oh that's too loud oh too much swearing so um <laughs> you know i mean i think it was like a sense of community like it was like a really um at least in my small town you know where there were like maybe you know 10 to 12 like punk kids in like my whole town like and like the rednecks were always trying to like fight you and like throwing stuff at you like anytime they saw you so it was like really like I think like they were the first group of kids who had my back in a fight you know for like the first time ever and I was like oh my gosh like these guys are gonna stick up for me you know like mm -hmm. and you know like for so for me like it was very much like a it was like very much like a real like survival like this is, these are the guys that like are going to look out for me in high school. Um, you know, like, I don't know who else I have, like, cause prior to that, I was just hanging out with like comic book nerds who like, just didn't, you know, they were just getting, you know, picked on all the time. And I, and I think there was like a humanity in me. I was like, I don't want to, you know, you know, get shoved into lockers all the time. And like, you know, like I want to stand up to these guys, but there's like six of them, you know, like this is not going to go well. So, but I mean, I also like really love the music and I think, you know, like, I think for me, like, I think, so there's like a kind of, a, you know, iconoclasm to punk rock where it's just kind of like whatever the rules are, like we're going to reject them and like come up with rules that work for us, you know. And so I think for me, like punk rock, like it, it checked off so many boxes, you know, like I think there's like the like the cultural slash sort of social critique of it where I was like, yeah, like society is fucked up. Like why does society make me feel like I want to do, you know, fit in and like be like other people and like be like cookie cutter, especially in the 80s. Like, so, so the rebellion against that was really powerful. And then also like just sort of like the, 
you know, it was the first time that like I I heard in sort of popular culture or in music like other kids talking about like sort of like their parents not really understanding them and like the dysfunction of like their parents in like a in a real way like not mm-hmm. like there's like you know like the I mean there's like other popular music that talks about like you know parents not understanding kids you know with like the Beach Boys and like Pink Floyd and stuff like that but it you know it just felt it did I, I didn't I didn't it didn't connect with me because it wasn't as angry and like when I heard punk rock I was like oh like oh I feel angry oh and they're mad about their parents I'm mad about my parents too you know like my people so I think like those are the you know going back to what we said about like you know a sense of belonging right like um you know community means like having a space where you feel seen valued and understood and I think for me like the punk rock scene was the first place where I felt those three things um you know definitely not not my by my family you know maybe maybe in school a little bit by some of my teachers but but I think for sure like uh, among my punk friends yeah Uh it's interesting um Um, oh sorry go ahead (laughs) I mean I was I just want to comment on how you know I didn't realize that music groups really are also a a community that you can belong in like different groups until I was a lot older because I think growing up and maybe this was just my generation growing up the social groups that I had in elementary school middle school high school first started out with you know what toys did you play with in elementary school so did you play with webkins did you play with barbies or (laughs) did you play with legos for sure um and then middle school it was all about the clothes and where did you buy your clothes did you go to limited two or did you did your mom buy knockoffs from ross or like did you buy name brands or not (laughs) And, and eventually with high school and i noticed this when i was in high school that there are a lot of groupies so whether you like I had groups in high school that adored Taylor Swift and I guess I so I found my friend group really late into high school um I didn't meet my friend group until June of senior year which is right when we graduated whoa yeah it's crazy but we we all this we were like they were already a friend group and I had a small friend group within that group and we all just decided to go to prom together and go to go do prom weekend together down the shore. And that's how we really became super close. And I realized that our friend group is, we're um, kind of like a melting pot, but we all have similar tastes in music. And there are some of us that really love country, but for me, my closest friends, we all love 80s classic rock. And (laughs) (laughs) I remember like, it's interesting now that we're having this conversation. I never really thought about it, but yeah, the, my closest friends and I, we bond over, you know, different music groups. Like we love Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi. We saw Foreigner in concert like two (laughs) years ago and Whitesnake and, you know, we love Journey and Aerosmith. Like that's the music that keeps us connected when, I, I had a friend text me last week saying, hey, Open Arms by Journey just came on the radio. And I don't know why, but it just reminded us, it reminded me of driving down from the shore, like at night, at the end of the day and like blasting it with the windows down. And it's interesting to see that music is also a social group. And I, 
I don't know why I never really thought of it in that perspective until just now, but I found mm. it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a way to, it's it's like a sort of instant community builder, right? Like the mm -hmm. thing that, it's like, you love the thing? Oh, I love the thing too. Like there must be other things that in our personalities that align, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, like, like prior to like online dating, like, you know, like, you know, like the likes and dislikes on like Tinder or, you know, yeah. whatever, like that, that was like sort of like the casual, like sort of not creepy way to figure out if like you got along with somebody, right? If you like, if you were just like, okay, books, music, movies, like go mm -hmm. and like TV shows, right? It's like, oh my God, you love friends. I love friends. Or like, you like the office. I love the office. Like I, mm -hmm. like, for whatever reason, I mean, and I'm sure it is, you know, it feels superficial, but like, if someone's like, oh, I don't like the office. And I'm like, I'm like, I love the office. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to like get along, man. I don't like, how do you not like the office? <laughs> you know, but I mean, obviously there's like more important things too, right? Like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, like if someone were talking about like social justice policies or, you know, like mm -hmm. the environment or something like that, but it's like, it's just kind of like a funny shorthand that, that, I don't know. I mean, it, it hasn't failed me yet, you know, so, and I'm not saying that I would not be friends with somebody if like they didn't like the office, but um, mm -hmm. it sure, it sure does help. Right. <laughs> but you know, you can't be like, Oh, I like the office and I'm also racist, you know, like that's like a hard, <laughs> that's like hard pass for me. Like, sorry, <laughs> but you know, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I really liked about your, your memoir and I found it like really authentic is like a, on the social group thing is like you you can tell that the social groups you're describing are real and like they're not some stupid cliche because like Thanks. the thing <laughs> you're welcome no the gripe i have i don't know if this is just me or if other people feel this too but like every like young adult setting like either book or movie or tv show it, they social groups are always so cliche and the exact same and like mm. i don't know that like my i mean I, my high school is weird but like i don't know that real high schools are like that like i really challenge that idea mm. and mm. like the way you told your story and like how you describe like the setting of like all the different groups and like the conflicts between and like how you, you know, are part of that was so authentic. And I really oh, thanks. appreciated that. Um, yeah, of course. Um, and so like, I'm, I think like one of our last questions in like the segment of the interview we have is like, um, you know, on the topic of authenticity in your book, you talk a lot about like balancing, like being good at school and loving and literature and loving literature, like that identity with like your punk rock identity mm. and how they kind of like the relationship between and how they were kind of different. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, um, you know, I think like part of, um, part of my growth as a person especially as a young person is recognizing that that um well I mean I think like as a kid like I, I I won't speak for other kids but I think like I was really binary right like it was kind of like you could either be this or you can be that like you can't be both and um you know and I think you know part of my evolution as a young adult and then as a you know grown grown up is like sort of breaking the binary right and breaking the idea that like mm -hmm. if it's one then it can't be the other right like that 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 we're paradoxical right like I you know I sort of reference the Walt Whitman quote a lot you know that you know Walt Whitman in his you know poem like song on myself right he says um you know do I contradict myself then I contradict myself right I'm large I contain multitudes um that that we're all complicated people and um just because we like one thing doesn't mean that we can't like another thing and like, I think when I had that realization or that understanding, which like the seed of it starts in high school, but like, it doesn't really sort of blossom for me until 
much, much, much later that um, that I recognize sort of like the complexity of who we are, right? And and even and for me, I think like the the most important journey is like recognizing my own complexity and then also being able to sort of honor it in other people, like my parents, you know, that 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 I can look at my parents and you know see sort of like their strength and their resilience you know as refugees and like all the sacrifices they made and also recognize like all their deficiencies and like their shortcomings as parents right um and that and try to understand where they came from not to excuse them but just to kind of like hold them in in your brain right um so i think like being able to hold like two contradictory thoughts, you know, and have them both be true at the same time, right? Like that's kind of like the hallmark of like <laughs> higher order thinking, I think, you know, um, and I think it's, and it's messy, right? And I think, mm -hmm. especially in this day and age, I think like we, um, like the like the Twitter sphere, the internet, um, and certainly not like the STEM, the STEM areas, like, like math and, you know, engineering don't allow for contradictory um, problem sets, right? Like I think it's always like two plus two equals four, right? And like and like the angles have to be right angles and things have to line up. And, and that's just not who we are as humans, right? Like we're, we're contradictory, we're messy, we're constantly evolving and changing. And, um, and I think anything that I can do to put out in the world, like um, to sort of challenge that or to make space for um a more nuanced understanding of who we are i think um that can only be a good thing because you know we're not like this these sort of like black and white cartoonish you know sort of binary humans you know like i think we're we're really messy um yeah so thanks for for seeing all of that so and, and the other piece i think of like the authenticity piece is like you know i think that's that's so hard to think like that the just the idea of authenticity is so weird to me because it means that like mm -hmm there are times when we're being fake. And I, I don't know what that means. Like, I think like, like this idea of like the, the wannabe, like you guys like, you know, or like, yeah. like nowadays, like mm -hmm. what do kids call, like kids call them like the tryhards or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like that yeah. idea of like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Like if, if I want to be a thing, like, what does that mean? Like, why can't, mm -hmm. doesn't that make me the thing? Or like, you know, if I, if I like want to be a jock or if I want to be cool, like, why does that automatically not make me part of that group? Um, because like, I think like, and I didn't experience this until I got to like college and the bigger world. But like when I started hearing other Asian kids, because I didn't, I didn't know any Asian kids in high school, but like when they started referring to other kids as like, oh, like they're, they're a Twinkie. And I was like, what the fuck's that? They're like, oh, you know, like they pretty much act white. I'm like, what the hell is, I don't even know what, you know, like, <laughs> like thankfully like I, I had like a pretty good sense of myself but I was like what does it mean to act white like I didn't even know like and I'm like well wait what does it mean to act Asian you know what I mean like am I so like it just it's like I think I just think like you are who you are and like you are your most authentic self all the time you know like I mm -hmm. you know um and I think that's okay like I think I want I hope I hope you know, people feel the permission to just like be who they are and like embrace that and celebrate it and not worry about like authenticity. Cause like, here's like, I mean, here's the short of it. This is like long winded, but like, I think once you set up this idea of like what is authentic and what is not, you're, 
there, there are gatekeepers who are going to be assigned to judging what is authentic and what is not. And like, I like, that's just like, that just feels like a bunch of bullshit to me. Like for someone to be like, okay, you are authentically Filipina and you are not. And it's like, what? Like, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Like it, you know, and um, yeah, I think this is really problematic because, um, I, because then it doesn't, it doesn't sort of, again, it, it doesn't embrace the complexity of who we are and the complexity of identity, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something that, you know, we talk about it on our podcast. You talk about it through your memoir. It's hard to really be authentic without being a try hard or a wannabe because if you really <laughs> are striving to be authentic and go for that authenticity, then you're putting too much effort into it. And I like what you mentioned about how you hope that people will just celebrate who they are and just really be true to their identities, whether that's, you know, like, you know, um, celebrating your cultural identity or whatever identities that you might not be so willing to share with the outside world. And that's something that you teach through your memoir and, you know, through the different Asian podcasts and podcasts in general that talk about culture and just our society now it's all in the grand scheme of things pushing towards this is something that we want to talk about that showcases a little bit of our own true self and what we want to celebrate and what we want to share with the people in the outside world and I think that if we can push past the idea of trying not to to be a wannabe and trying not to be one of those tryhards and just doing it for the sake of we love doing what we do, whether that's writing, hosting a podcast, be like shouting punk rock at like at the top of your lungs. <laughs> right. It whatever it may be, if you can do it with no worries and you're just doing it because it's something that you love to do, that's the that's the ultimate goal in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are going to dive right into the four questions that we ask every guest that comes into the situation room. All right, I'm and ready. I'm, I'm nervous. Yes, I'm <laughs> going to kick it off with, what does it mean to be Asian American Pacific Islander, in your opinion? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, you have access to a very um, rich heritage, you know, and language and culture and food. Um you know, I, I think like we're in a unique position though of, you know, being, you know, a- Asian American Pacific Islander in the United States, because it means like, it's kind of like buffet style, right? Like there's a choice, you know, like, so like in the US, like, I think there's like this incredible choice. Like I, I'm cheating because I'm saying like in America mm-hmm. and in America, I think like you get to kind of pick and choose how that plays out for you and, and what, what things you connect with and what things you don't. Um, I think it's really, um, I think it's, it, it feels like much more, um, there's a lot more agency in it than, than if I grew up in like, let's say Vietnam, like if I grew up in Vietnam, like it, there's a, there, there's like a much more limited kind of like cultural menu that I can pick from. Um, whereas in the U S like, you know, it's like, we're going to have tacos tonight for dinner. Right. But then like tomorrow night, like I'll make like stir fry and then like, you know, we can go and I, so it feels really rich to me. Um, 
And so I think like, um, I think having access to that and obviously to the community is really powerful. So, um, so yeah, I don't even know if I answered the question, but next. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. You're good. All right. Next question. What is your favorite Asian dish? Ooh, like pan Asian, like any, any, yeah, any, anything. Oh my God. Whatever you want. <laughs> All right. Um, you could I'm going to go, I'm going to go with this. And this is not because Emily is on the podcast. Like it's for me, like really it's like a freeway tie. Like, I mean, I love like, uh, like, like a Japanese ramen bowl, like, like so good, right? Like an udon. So good. Um, I'm basically like a noodle guy, but then I also, I've only had it like four times, but like, um, pancit, um, pancit yes. bihon is like, right so good like it's basically mm -hmm. like the, the philippine like the filipino version of like pho and then of course like in vietnam like pho is like amazing like my mom's pho is like you know top notch which like every vietnamese person says right like you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah oh. so yeah basically like all the noodle dishes <laughs> oh you can't go wrong with noodles no never you really can't. no never <laughs> okay next question who is your aapi role model Oh man. Um, gosh, so hard. I love, um, I know he's like fictional, but like Glenn from the walking dead, okay. yeah. <laughs> but like Steven specifically Yoon. Glenn, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I love, you know, Steven Yeun, but like, <laughs> I like, but like Glenn in that, like, he's like a survivor in the apocalypse. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, he has like moral clarity and like, you know, he, I don't know. I just like, there's, there's just something about him. I like in watching the show. I was like, Oh my God, like I really identify with him. And, um, and, you know, and it's mostly just about like sort of maintaining moral clarity and being a good person um, in the face of like sort of terrible, terrible odds. Um, and, and that seems to be like at least the refugee story a lot of times. Right. So, um, so that, that really speaks to me. So yeah, fic fictional Asian person, but Steven Yeun's also awesome. <laughs> I like Glenn. The Glenn in The Walking Dead is kind of my hero. Yeah. I love it. Uh, our last question is how can people connect with you? Um, so uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is Book Skywalker. So, um, you know, nerd. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm on there. I, I'm not on Twitter or anything like that. But um, yeah, so I just post like random weird, weird things on, on my Instagram and I'm pretty active on there. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So where can people find your book as well? Yeah, it's available. Yeah. Thanks guys. Uh, yeah. It's available at um, all your local booksellers. You know, obviously uh, I always encourage people to buy from their local independent booksellers if they can, but you know, obviously like Amazon is great. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, but yeah, I mean, you can get it pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wait, you also recorded your own audiobook too, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to hear me read the audiobook. Um, so I did that. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was, um, uh, and I got, I think it was on audibles, like, uh, top five, like audiobooks for 2020. So whoa, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. 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 Yep. Amazing. Me, and me and Barack Obama, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> literally, like, a picture of my book next to like Barack Obama's book. I was like, Oh shit. I was like, I, I was going to say, not... wait, Barack Obama's <laughs> book is on the top five. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow. Super I was like, somebody fucked up. Like, this is, I don't know why I'm on that list, but yeah, there I am. But yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess I did. I didn't do too bad of a job. So yeah. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks guys. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Well, thank you again. Uh, thank you to Fuktron for coming 
into the situation room today and having this conversation with us. Guys, if you're interested in anything that was mentioned during our interview, definitely check out our show notes for this episode on our website, www.situationroom.com and pick up a copy of Saigon. Like this was an incredible book. Zach and I both read it. Uh, We both loved it. It's definitely one of our stories that we would recommend to all of our listeners. It's on our blog post. If you go onto our website and check out our blog, uh, 10 books to buy for the holidays. I know it's past the holiday season, but those are still really good books. So definitely check it out. Check out Saigon. And yeah, thank you so much, Fook, for coming in today. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with your semester. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dish It Out table. For those of you who are new to our show, this is the foodie segment where we sit down and we dish it out with some of our foodie favorites from our own cultures, as well as bring in dishes from other uh, cultures in the Asian American Pacific Islander community for you guys. So last episode was a challenge episode. So for this episode, we are bringing it back home and talking about some of our favorite dishes from our own cultures. And as always, I'm going to kick it off with one of my favorite home dishes. I feel like every episode I say this dish is one of my favorite dishes, but I promise you guys, every dish is a favorite because when we're in planning, I put all of my favorite dishes at the top. So for the next couple of episodes, it's just going to be my favorite dish. And for the past, however many... (laughs) the past like season and a half it's just this is my favorite dish but for this episode i am bringing a classic filipino dish to the dish at that table today um i'm going to be talking about sisig and for those of you my filipino homies and those of you who do know filipino food sisig is a classic dish this is usually served on a sizzling skillet it's minced um pork and this is gonna turn some people off, but this is all the byproducts of the pig. So snout, ear, um, traditionally it's served that way. And then it's also served with um, chicken hearts or chicken liver. But nowadays we don't go through all of the hassle of preparing each of those different byproducts. So we just use pork belly pork belly and if we can we'll add maybe we'll throw on some chicken but sisig is one of my absolute actually this is probably my absolute favorite dish in filipino cuisine can i quote you on that yes you can (laughs) and i love sisig so it's usually the minced pork or chicken or honestly a lot of filipino restaurants will do different types of sisig with different meats or seafoods I've had um, butterfly fish or bangos as served as sisig, and it's honestly incredible. And I've also had squid sisig, which is really good. But it's minced meat served on a sizzling skillet, and it's there is a mayo base mixed in with the meat, so it's creamy, it's savory, it's salty, and then there's also minced garlic and onions. Um, in the dish and chili peppers and then if you're doing it right you serve a fried egg right on top 
and you pop the you pop the yolk once it's served to you and you let the yolk drizzle all over the meat and you as always because in the philippines you have to serve it with rice there is no other way to have seasoning and this is also considered a bar food in the philippines so people yep. have seasick and enjoy it with the beer. But All right. I love this dish. It sounds good. It sounds very good. I'm down to try it. I think I saw it on the menu at the Filipino place on 100 Lucky. Am I wrong? Yes. They do have, um, it's Liempo Sisig. So Liempo in Tagalog is pork belly. Ooh. So it's a pork belly Sisig. And it does have, I don't think it has the chili peppers in it but it does have the garlic, the onions. It has that mayo base with the pork belly and it has that fried egg served right on top. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Also, you gotta, you gotta use all the parts of the animal, you know, kinda oh, no yeah, waste. Oh yeah, 100%. Got no waste out here. Um, that sounds awesome. Um, for my uh, dish it out dish from home favorite, I think you'll probably recognize it as chung fun is the steamed rice rolls at dim sum. Uh, they are delicious. They're hard to mm-hmm. eat with chopsticks because uh, they're slippery, but they're delicious. Um, so it's like a steamed rice dough with a filling. Usually it's like meat, shrimp, or fried dough. I like the fried dough one. The shrimp one's also very good. And so the way they steam it's interesting because they have like this contraption where like the rice dough is like poured on top and then it's like steamed all together. Uh, into this roll and then it gets rolled up and then they pour like soy sauce or soy based sauce on top of it. Um, but it is absolutely delicious. I introduced my friend to it and he did not like it as much as I did. So I ate the whole dish, but it was great. It was great. A lot of people don't like it because of the texture of it. And it's because, you know, you have the shrimp or the meat and the, or the fried dough. And then it's mm-hmm. the slippery dumpling wrapper. Yeah, it's um, not, or the rice dough. Yeah, it's like a huge, huge roll of fat noodles. It's like a, yeah, it's like a fat noodle, but like lighter and airier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I personally, I love it. When we, when my family goes to dim sum, we usually get it, and um, we usually get the shrimp, um, the uh, rice rolls, and it's honestly, oh my goodness, there is a specific way that. One of my friends, I've and I've never seen this done before, but when you're sitting with friends and you're or you're sitting with a group of people and you're splitting that um, those rice rolls with everyone, one of my friends did this thing where she split it with just two chopsticks and she kind of she like yeah she like crisscrossed the, the chopsticks <clears throat> and just ran across and I've yeah. never seen people do that. It was really cool. I feel like I do that on my own plate, but maybe not on the on the everyone's plate but yeah i mean well with the main dish yeah i've never seen it i've never seen it like that but yeah honestly this is it's so good because it's how would you describe the 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 flavor profile for the steam rice rolls just in general without the soy sauce the soy based sauce it's like a noodle you know like but like sort of dumpling-esque like dumpling wrapper-esque yeah uh, it's like it's on the plain side obviously because it's like a rice dough you know uh mm-hmm. and like the consistency is like kind of chewy but then the meat inside gives it like yeah a, it's not know. exactly gummy in 
like I guess like the taste the texture but it it's like a little gummy but not like in a bad way yeah you know like because like pasta is gum like it's chewy it's so chewy it can be gummy mm-hmm. if it's bad but it's just it's gummier than pasta i don't this is a weird way to describe it it's good though and this is this has been the segment where M and zach just go off on a tangent on, <laughs> on the texture of the right stuff but honestly i've been eating that dish for so long every time my family goes to dim sum we ha- we have to order two for the table um if you guys haven't tried it or if you guys haven't tried sisa that's definitely two dishes that you guys have to add to your must eat next list um yes. but yeah if you guys enjoyed hearing about sisa and chow fang um let us know what you guys thought think in the comments um, and if you guys have specific dishes that you want us to bring to the dish it out table, let us know, send us a message, write us a comment, let us know what you guys, what, let us know what you want us to do, bring to the dish it out table next. Wow. That took a lot out of me. <laughs> it's okay. It's late in the night. We were recording a bunch of these. So yep. We'll see you next time. Thank you again to Fook Tran for coming into the Situation Room and thank you all for tuning into this episode. Remember to pick up a copy and we'll have some links in our show notes of Saigon. And so as always, the Situation Room is produced by Crimson Planet Media. Make sure to check out our website, situationroom.com. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook at the Situation Room for more content. Yes, and as always guys, we want to hear from you. So send us messages and dish it out recipes through our website, slide into our DMs on Instagram, send us messages on Facebook, and let us know what you guys want to see next in the Situation Room. But for now, thank you for joining us on this step of our journey through Asian America. My name is Emily Villaverde. And I'm Zach King.